All right, guys, look, we know what this is. It's my pre-show pitch to try to convert more free first-hour listeners to full two-hour-plus show subscribers. And this is a format I've been using for 10 years now, so I realize that most people who see the value have already pulled the trigger on it, but now I'm trying to get deep down into those hard-to-reach places, and I guess that's you. Now, what can I say that hasn't been said? There's only a few ways a podcast works. The big one is ads. They suck. They ruin the flow of the show. And in a lot of cases, they erode the trust and respect I have for hosts that go this route. They shouldn't be promoting boner pills and hair pills or encouraging a fast track through the therapy pipeline just because they're getting paid. I've seen nutritionalists break down some of these ingredients in the athletic health powders and drinks and surprise, they're not as good as they claim to be. I bought a razor my favorite podcaster said would be Nick Proof, nicked myself the first day. I got sucked into a foam mattress from a guy who said he's never slept better and I haven't slept good since. And that Irish titles thing everyone was selling turned out to be a complete scam too. But enough about how my colleagues' mouths are for sale to whoever asks, I'm here to put you in this Plus membership today. Five shows a month for eight bucks with a decade-long archive. And yes, the first hour is important. It's there to present our guests to the wide counterculture, open-minded audience we've cultivated, and it gives people a feel for if they like what THC is, as well as being the proof of concept that I can do a lot more with the added time. The second hour is so I can make a living, and it's also an opportunity to get into the stuff your standard one-hour shows can't. Asking guests about that obscure, provocative quote from their book that I actually read, talking about previous work they might have done, getting their thoughts on some odd subject outside of their latest material, or maybe even talking about something too spicy to be out there in the open. And that should appeal to anyone who enjoys the first hour. And when you become a Plus member, these full episodes are all there in a single two-hour file, no switching back and forth or downloading two separate halves of the same interview. It's very nice to have it that way going forward. And if you want to go back, unlike most podcast archives that are just a big chronological list, the HiresideChats.com has categories and scrolling displays much like the big streaming services. And it's all optimized for mobile, and you can even download the files for offline listening. Find some old ones you liked and refresh your memory by starting at the beginning or jump in about 50 minutes to hear everything that would be new to you. I'm even going to be pulling one free plus show a month out of the archive and into the free feed to give you an even better sense of what you miss. The on-site comment section is pretty lively and the rating system is there to let me know the shows plus people like best. You also get lifetime access to the forum and access to a bonus page of exclusive interviews I've done here and there, bonus content from other shows that I was on videos from the few live podcasts I've done, and the MP3s of all the THC closing cover songs I've had made. But that's not all, folks. Plus members also get a discount code for THC merch. A lot of great artwork of aliens, summoning rituals, hollow earth maps, and a wide range of wild stuff put on shirts, coffee mugs, pillows, yada yada yada. But it's the ongoing full interviews people want, and it's convenience that they need. Well, I know 90% of listeners are in a podcasting app right now. So at the top of the show notes, there are the signup links. The form is quick and easy and THC Plus has an RSS feed like any other show and it can be used with all the big podcasting apps too. I've got support documents and real non-bot people to help you if you need it. But it's been made as easy as it can be and you get a seven day free trial to make sure I'm right. At least meet me there. I also have a Patreon link at the top of the show notes, which I don't love. I'd rather not have a middleman between us when we could be dancing cheek to cheek, but they are a Spotify partner, and a lot of people choose Spotify to listen to THC. So I wanted to make sure they could use it for Plus also, while they let us. 
The show notes also give you my P.O. box for cash, checks, or business-to-business bartering, as well as all the crypto addresses, because anything is better than nothing. And I want the Plus shows to be heard any way they can be. Just offer me some kind of exchange, you know? This is the job I work at. And I use this example a lot, but a waiter gets an $8 tip for walking the most forgettable meal of your life from the kitchen to the table, and you don't get anything extra for your $8 either. If what I do here isn't at least worth that, is it even worth your time? Hey, I don't like doing this part of the job, but I owe it to my family now to suck it up and make my case while I can, because who knows how long this can last. I'm not some Hollywood millionaire trying to appear genuine through a focus-grouped podcasting venture cycling through all the other celebrities in the agency. I'm just a regular guy who had to make myself valuable when the working world didn't think I had anything to offer. And I hope the first free hour proves that the full experience is worth the price. If we don't like the ad revenue-based world we're living in, then we have to support people who dare to do it a different way, who provide us something interesting, entertaining, and hopefully useful. Outside of that, I just ask that you support the guests who resonate with you, or at least let them know you appreciated what you heard. And that's it. We can get on with the show. And we'll let the rest of the podcasting world pretend there's no better way to do it than disingenuously hyping up any product that cuts them a check while we do our own thing. Meet me on the plus side. The water's fine. And enjoy. Masters home, surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man. But until you've thoroughly tested every last close trust of you, find the more you think you know, the less you really do. Oh, oh, it's magic, people. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And our thoughts on so many various chapters of history are completely oversimplified by the writings of a few elevated authors, the winners of wars, a subpar educational system, and of course, Hollywood depictions that present an almost cartoonish version of various cultures, events, and time periods. And our impressions of early America are certainly affected by these things, from representations of the first Thanksgiving and the story of Pocahontas, to the archetypes of the puritanical pilgrims on a manifest destiny mission from God versus the unsophisticated local savages. The reality is a lot more nuanced, and when you dig into the common trope that America was founded as a Christian nation, even that seems to fall apart under the weight of a strong, underreported esoteric tradition and a multitude of metaphysical views that have always been present here. One just needs to examine the layout of Washington, D.C. or the dreaded dollar bill to realize something much more interesting was going on. Well, these are the things I've learned from today's guest Ronnie Pontiac in his book American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World where he looked at everything from colonial-era alchemists, astrologers, and early spiritual collectives, to Edgar Cayce, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, and St. Germain on Mount Shasta. 
Ronnie is also the co-author of The Magic of the Orphic Hymns with his wife Tamara Lucid and was actually Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. Ronnie also puts out a weekly astrology report through his Medium page and is an award-winning documentary producer as well. Here to peel back the puritanical perception and educate us on a much weirder America, the esoteric author, space weather forecaster, and Manly P. Hall right-hand man, Ronnie, welcome to the higher side. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, man. I really appreciate you doing this. I love a lot of the obscure information in your book, American Metaphysical Religion, and the largely unknown people you highlight throughout it. But before we get into that, like so many other hosts, I'm sure, I want to ask you about Manly P. Hall. I've heard you talk about how he mentored you as a kid, and I read the piece, The Maestro and the Boy, The Kindness of Manly P. Hall. In it, you write, Manly Palmer Hall wasn't my grandfather, yet he was. Both my grandfathers had been killed in a war, but fate provided a friend who gave me all the grandfatherly gifts of wisdom and opportunity anyone could hope for. I knew Manly personally near the end of his life. He worked his alchemy on me in a most Taoist way. His friendship transformed me from an angry, despairing devotee of nihilism to a seeker of truth and harmony. The biographical writings about him are available online and off, including his own, and they fail to convey a true sense of the man I knew. I think that's well written, and what more might you say about him that people wouldn't get from the biographies? That's a good question. Well, I would say that perhaps the most important thing to know about him was I once had a conversation with him about meditation. Somebody had recommended to me the classic meditate in the morning and in the evening for 15 minutes approach. And so I asked him about that and he said that that was a good practice. And I said, do you practice that way? And he said, no. He said that over time he had been able to achieve the equivalent of the Zen walking meditation. And I asked him to explain that. And what that meant was sustaining a level of meditative consciousness throughout all the activities of the day. So when you read biographies about him in general, you will read about some of his idiosyncrasies, that he liked to sneak junk food once in a while, or his reluctance to fire people. He tended to stay home when somebody was going to get fired. And as you read these small idiosyncrasies on page after page, you begin to get the feeling that, you know, he was just a regular guy that had built this amazing way to make a living by releasing books and lecturing every Sunday morning. But the truth in my experience was that he exemplified this walking meditation. So in other words, yes, he would occasionally, you know, have an in and out burger or two, but he did it in this very conscious kind of way with a sense of humor and an understanding that we're all just human. And when you achieve that level of consciousness, you don't become an invisible master who would never eat a hamburger again. He found what was comfortable to him, what he enjoyed, and he lived that way. And as a result, first, synchronicities just appeared in flurries around him. And I experienced that the whole time I was there, beginning with the very first time I ever heard him speak on a Sunday morning. And when he looked right at me, and I was raised 
as an only child by war survivors who were never treated for it. They were really crazy. And I spoke with an accent, even though I was born in America when I was a child. And when I got into school, I was beat up constantly all the way up through sixth grade. And I had no social contract by the time I became a teenager. I just thought the world was a place of suffering and nonsense and all of it was a waste and that humans had no reason to be on the planet. They were ruining all the species and ecology that I loved. And I despised human culture. The first thing that happened to me was I turned that nihilism into a fairly successful band locally that was unfortunately very aggressive and violent and racist. And we had a big following of biker gangs. I mean, biker gangs, the Satan slave and the devil's henchmen were our security. I was like 17 and I had bikers like beating people up without even asking me, you know, I think he'd want us to beat him up, that kind of thing. And I was also very violent myself. I pulled knives on band members. I deliberately ran my car into someone. I, I mean, really just out of control. And as my wife, Tamara, put it in her book, I was basically like looking for another Altamont to happen. And I wanted to be in the middle of it. And I read Crowley and Austin Spare and Anton LaVey and Evola. And I, I found them all dismissible. I thought they were all romantic idealists. And I was looking for power and real negativity. And to me, that wasn't there in their writing. So I turned that into this band. And in the midst of all that, I was blessed. I mean, I don't use that word lightly. I was at this notorious club. The girl who had become my wife was there. She found herself in a really dangerous situation. She'd been basically cornered by about five guys. She had the opportunity, just one chance to get some help. And even though the guy who ran the club who saw her looking at me said, do not talk to that guy. He is bad news. And this was like a mob club. And they're saying, this guy is bad news, right? She was a kid who got brought there by a friend and looked very out of place. And she chose me to ask for help. She came up to me in the rain. I was standing out there smoking a cigarette. And she said, please help me. I'm in trouble. That awakened a chivalry that I didn't know I had. And so I did help her. I fell in love with her. She wound up living with me within a couple of weeks. And that love and also her basic, her honesty, her goodness, her intelligence just changed my life. She taught me about everything from flossing my teeth to, you know, why it's stupid to lie, because it's hard to remember all those lies. And I had been a devotee of the power of the lie. Like I relished in what I could make normies do by lying to them. And I really relished making optimists pessimists. So she calmed me down, but we were both still pretty cynical about the world and about life in general. And I came upon a copy of The Secret Teachings of All Ages, but actually the encyclopedic outline. It was the sixth edition, the first kind of reduced size where the photographs or rather the illustrations were black and white. But it looked like this old tome from the 1900s to me, like from actually from the 1800s. And that book changed my life. As I read chapter to chapter, it just changed how I saw everything, history and the potential of living a life and the potential of our society and 
he has at the beginning of the book this dedication, which is to the rational soul of nature. And that really speaks to it, that it, it suddenly said this isn't a world of chaos and suffering and nonsense that happened accidentally, that this is a world where when you sync yourself, when you harmonize properly, you and nature can become collaborators in creation rather than just being victimized by random events. I told a friend of mine about the book and she said, well, you should go see him lecture, honey. And I thought he was for sure dead because he kind of looked old in the picture and the book looked really old. And I just thought he must be long gone. And she said, no, he lectures just down the street from where you live. You should go. It took me a few months to go down there because I knew who I was. And I just thought that somebody like that and his community would just look right through me and would not want me anywhere near that place. You know, thief and everything that I had done. But Tamara convinced me because she said, you know, how will you feel? He's an old dude. You know, if he passes and you've never seen him and you had the chance, wouldn't you feel like an idiot? So one Sunday morning, we went down there. Now, I had been considering moving to Virginia Beach because the same person who told me about his lectures was somebody that was deeply into Edgar Casey and was convinced that California was about to drop off the map. And she scared me. I didn't know really much about metaphysics. And I, I just thought, oh, my God, we're all going to die. I got to go to Virginia Beach. Well, he looked right at me during that lecture and he said, people who suffer irrational terrors of natural disasters because they are guilty about how they have lived their lives. <laughs> right at me. Wow. I found out later that he couldn't see me because he did not have good vision by that point in his life. We were basically blurs out there. But I also found out from being a screener that there were many people that had that experience, that every single lecture, he had this uncanny knack of just looking at somebody and saying something deeply personal and meaningful to them. And these kinds of synchronicities were involved in other areas, including with me, because I was so impressed that both Tamara and I decided to volunteer at the Philosophical Research Society to do just anything that we could do to help. and. We had an interview and they loved her because she had office skills and they were immediately interested, but I had nothing. I mean, you know what I was bringing to the table, it was all wrong. And they did ask me one question, which was, do you have any knowledge of other languages, of European languages? And I said, well, yeah, I grew up around a bunch of European languages, people speaking French and German and Russian and Polish and and so even though I, I can't really read them, but I understand them and I'm familiar with them to a certain degree. The next day they called up and they offered her a job. And I said, no way, man. Like, I'm not going to sit here and take care of the cats while you are out there working at PRS. So forget it. And the next day after that, the phone rang and the message was Manly Hall wants to meet you. And I thought, what in the world? Okay, but what a great opportunity, right? I get to meet the man. That's awesome. So the next morning we went down there and they led me into his office. And there he was sitting behind this beautiful, ornately carved Chinese desk with a smile on his face. And on either side of him were two elderly women, so four all together. 
And these women were the women who really ran PRS at that point. They were scowling at me. And he said, come on in and make yourself miserable in kind of a W.C. Fields meets Barrymore accent. So I came in, I sat down. He had a stack of paper in front of him. He pushed it in front of me. And he said, that's my alchemical bibliography and I want you to edit it. I had no experience. I mean, I had just read about alchemy for the first time, really, in his book. I was stunned that he thought that I could do something. I didn't even know what a bibliography was. And I told him, I do not have the skills that you think I have. There's no way I can do this. And he said, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. And he said, take it, look it over, come back tomorrow, and we'll talk about what I want you to do. So I pick up the galley, didn't even know what a galley was. And I was kind of holding on to it. And I walked out of the library and the vice president of the society, Pat Irvin, had run or sort of around and stood in front of me, blocked my way and said, give me that. And I said, yes, please take it. This was a mistake. And she took it and I thought it was over. When I got home, there was another call. Manley Hall, his office, first thing in the morning. So go down there the next morning. It's just him this time. His secretary comes in and out. And he pushes it back in front of me. And he says, from now on, you take orders only from me. If anybody tells you anything that contradicts anything that I say, you come to me. I said again, but Mr. Hall. I don't know how to do this. I don't know, have any of these skills. I don't even know these languages very well. He said, we'll get together every morning when you show up. And we'll talk about what you will do on that day. And he said, when we have lunch, you can have lunch with me in the vault. And you can talk to me about the books that you're working on. And you can ask me any questions that you like. And then in the evening, I'll look over your work. Wow. Wow. Right. Go have lunch with Manley Hall in the vault. I mean, Manley Hall unscrolling the famous George Ripley alchemical scroll of which there were only a few in the world and showing it to me in the vault and just amazing. So it turned out that I did have the skills and there's another synchronicity. And the reason that he had brought me in was because the bibliographer that had been working on the book, who was an academic, had included information about bodily fluids used in alchemical recipes. And Mr. Hall felt that that was dangerous, that most people were not capable of dealing with that level of alchemy. And he also felt that his audience wasn't really that interested in those kind of things. They might be disgusted and repulsed by it. So first thing was remove all references to bodily fluids here. And then I was to check all the measurements and add things that he wanted added. And so this became an amazing experience to be working with him daily. And he was impressed by me. So I became his research assistant as well. And we became friends. And that completely changed my life. I mean, I tell a story there, and Tamara tells it better in her book, which is called Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, which is about our friendship with the Halls, where I was a terrible thief. And as I was hanging around the library, especially when I, was, I became his assistant in research, and he was sending me around the library to grab books out of the shelves, I kept seeing 
these amazing old books that were out in the library. They were not in the vault. And I wanted them, you know, like I still remember some of them. I just really wanted to take them. And I could see how easy it would be to do. And so this inner battle opened up in me where I was like, do not do this to this man who has given you this amazing opportunity to become a civilized human being. Well, he invited us over to dinner for the first time to their house. And while we were there, he told us extensive joke that I won't butcher by trying to tell it. But the punchline was basically it was the story of a priest in early California who was trying to build missions. And once a year, he would gather all the local citizens, especially the wealthy ones, and he would give them a stirring sermon. And then he would ask them to please give him resources so he could build more missions. Well, on his way there, he met someone who was injured. And this guy wouldn't tell him anything about himself. He was an outlaw, obviously. He helped the outlaw get healthy. And the outlaw became kind of his assistant and would help him out with things. So after this amazing stirring sermon was given, suddenly the priest said, oh, no. And this fellow said, what happened, Father? And he said, I didn't ask for donations. I just forgot. And then the guy said, oh, don't worry. I took care of it. He said, you told me to. He said, when did I tell you to? Now, if you're Catholic or amongst your listeners, there's a famous Catholic blessing, Dominic Fiscum. And the name of this outlaw that was given by the priest was Dominic. And he said, you said Dominic Friscum. So I did. <laughs> so you know, I laughed and I walked out and we get in the car and Tamara says, I think you've just been poked. <laughs> I think somebody gets what you're going through here. And then as if to make that even more obvious, the next day he says to me, you can take home any books you like. Just bring them back when you're done. Mm. So I didn't even take the ones I wanted, right? You know, I was like, I don't dare do that yet. But what I will do is I will take some. And then eventually I took the ones that I wanted to steal home and I brought them back. And then I became the guy who went through the library and picked all those rare volumes that were in danger of being stolen and had them moved into the vault so they were safe. And that cured me for the rest of my life from being a thief. So that's just one little example of how he impacted me. And, but I tell this story because of the synchronicities. I didn't tell him, I want to steal your books. I didn't mention it to anybody except Tamara. And here he was in the zone with this. So I saw that happen over and over again when I worked with him. He had this very magical kind of tuned in harmonious presence. And things happened around him that were subtly miraculous, I would say. Mm -hmm. But he was a super down to earth guy. I mean, sure. he liked to talk about baseball and tell jokes and show off his stamp collection. He really was into being just a very even keeled kind of normal guy. And then these amazing things would happen around him. Right. And he's certainly been mythologized. I think there's something, especially in today's internet culture, where if you seem to have a lot of knowledge, it's almost like your default bad. Like, we want the knowledge. These are the knowledge keepers. And he definitely doesn't seem like that to me. I learned a lot listening to Manly P. Hall lectures when I was younger. And I know there are people who just think simply Freemason equals bad, but there's 
like a world of difference between him and, say, Albert Pike, who was a Southern pro-slavery general. But I did want to ask you this. Now, there's a lot of questions I have about your book, but just one more Manly P. Hall thing. So if you look up his book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages at CIA.gov, which it is there, it includes this endorsement by John Bruno Hare that reads, for once, a book which really lives up to its title. Hall self-published this massive tome in 1928, consisting of about 200 legal-sized pages in eight-point type. It is literally his magnum opus. Each of the nearly 50 chapters is so dense with information, it is the equivalent of an entire short book. If you read this book in its entirety, you will be in a good position to dive into subjects such as Kabbalah, alchemy, tarot, ceremonial magic, neoplatonic philosophy, mystery religions, and the theory of Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry. Although there are some questionable and controversial parts of the book, such as the outdated material on Islam, the portion on the Bacon-Shakespeare hypothesis, and Hall's conspiracy theory of history as driven by an elite cabal of roving immortals, they are far outweighed <laughs> by the comprehensive information here on the subject. Well, what are your thoughts on that assessment? The book isn't exactly fresh in my mind. It's been maybe 15 years. But the idea that history is driven by an elite cabal of roving immortals is probably one of my favorite ways to describe such a thing or maybe my favorite part of such a book. What do you think? I had a talk with him about that. I mean, first of all, how did it get on the CIA page and why? And I mean, I don't have an answer to that, but it always stuns me. There was a time when he was... I mean, I knew him when he was in his 80s, near the end of his life. He was not political at that point. He would sometimes refer to America's secret destiny and things along those lines, which were popular themes for him. His most popular lecture ever was about the secret destiny of America given in Carnegie Hall during World War II. And I think that he felt the loyalty to that subject. But how he wound up there, I don't know. Now, he did, my understanding is that he had a relationship with Mayor Yorty in Los Angeles that Ronald Reagan, supposedly when he was governor, came by to meet with him once or twice. But I wasn't around when any of that was happening. And I don't know what he was trying to do at that point. When I knew him, I asked him about this whole idea of the invisible masters, which he really acquired from theosophy. He was very influenced by Blavatsky in the beginning. When he was a kid starting out, he was all about the secret doctrine and Isis unveiled and the theosophical and also the Rosicrucian teachings of Max Heindel, which were quite similar. And in both of these traditions, there is that idea of these roving, invisible masters who really are pulling the strings. Now, the funny thing is that they're supposed to be good, right? Like in Manly Hall's point of view, these are not evil elitists who are keeping all of us ignorant and taking all the wealth of the world and trying to dominate everything. These are people who are trying to save us from ourselves, who are trying to block the evil elites who are trying to control everything and who are trying to bring goodness into the world. That's how he saw it. So when he said New World Order, for example, I just recently put up a lecture that I gave at PRS back in the 80s called Marriage in the New World Order. And this was an example of when I had to lecture for him when he wasn't up to coming out on a Sunday morning and he picked the titles, right? So I was like, oh, Jesus, you know, 
marriage in the new world order. So I asked him, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by new world order? And he saw it in this beautiful idealistic kind of only thing I can use as an example would be kind of like the Star Trek Federation of Planets or something. It was this highly elevated. It was also related to this idea that I talk about in the book of the College of Light, which was something that the great educator Comenius came up with and that later in America, John Winthrop the Younger tried to implement and failed because uh, unfortunately a war broke out with the indigenous tribes and the European intelligencers and alchemists and philosophers and proto-scientists that he tried to bring out to all get together in one area and be like this college of light that didn't happen. But the idea was that you gather up all the most intelligent people, all the people who are seeking to understand creation and how to live both in the physical and spiritual dimensions, and you get them all working together, and then you share that information with everyone. So the more people that become enlightened by that information, then the better the world becomes. That was the idea of the new world order there. Even then, it seemed naive to me, right? <laughs> in the same way that there was this idea at the society that if only the world would understand Bacon's great approach and that he was behind Shakespeare and that he was behind the Rosicrucians and he was behind the foundation of America. And, and if the world could realize that, it would change everything. And Tamara put it beautifully because she said, you know, the people that I grew up around, they were into Bacon, but it wasn't Francis. <laughs> and our idea was nobody cares. Like most people don't care who wrote Shakespeare or any of that stuff. But the society had this, everybody was so devoted. It was this beautiful, serene, like little Pythagorean community or something. And there, it seemed like there could be a new world order and that people would be enlightened and inspired. And in a sense, I was an example of that happening, right? Because I was inspired by what I read in that book. But I did have an opportunity to speak to him about it. It happened because I asked him, if you had it all to do over again, what would you do differently? And this was just between us. And he said that he would not have emphasized all the invisible master stuff the way he did so strongly in his youth. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah. He said, instead, I would have said, and he actually wrote this in one of his last books, that who are the Rosicrucians? They're not invisible superhumans. They're us. They're people who devoted themselves to Rosicrucian ideals, finding out how to heal and then healing people who couldn't afford it for free, standing up for the innocent and the weak, fighting against religious tyranny, bringing science together with philosophy and religion and all of these ideas. And so he had changed in his approach, even though even in that last book, he still went in there and he started talking again about these invisible group, not really invisible, but secret orders that were still working to help us along. But he also said that he felt that he would have emphasized that before anyone begins studying any area of metaphysics, they should familiarize themselves deeply with some area of psychology of their choice. Because he felt that for people who have psychological issues, that when they take those issues untreated into metaphysics, it amplifies them. And then you can get all kinds of terrible experiences, which he spent 
much of his life counseling. And when I was his screener, you know, my job was basically on the one hand, make sure that people who wanted to meet him for reasons that were intended for their own self-benefit and may have been detrimental to his reputation were screened out. But my main job was talking to all the people who needed help, who were trying to reach him as a sort of last resort because they had done ceremonial magic and they realized they didn't close the circle properly and it freaked them out. And then they believed they were being haunted by entities that were ruining their lives or the same kind of experience occurring in spiritualism where somebody got in touch with a spirit that was talking to them and then wouldn't leave them alone or was telling them things that were disturbing or people who had lost the ability to function in day-to-day life because they had become so deeply immersed in the esoteric that instead of it building them up and opening their soul, it was turning them into these kind of recluses who were unable to function any longer. And they all wanted to talk to you know, people that were growing third eyes, they thought, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was an eye-opener, man, to talk to that side of the metaphysical world and see how much damage was done. Now, of course, the same thing happens in every religion. I mean, almost any human activity can create that issue. And that's why I think he suggested that people needed to have some awareness of psychology so they could understand the shadow and the unconscious and kind of have more stability and groundedness. So I think there was a level at which he did kind of believe that there was a potential, let's say, of this kind of thing occurring. And it's not very different from Mahayana Buddhism, where you have these great masters who supposedly achieve the ability to transcend the physical body and can sort of teleport themselves or some aspect of themselves and communicate with people. And we have many, many stories throughout the history of metaphysics, especially in alchemy, of worthy seekers suddenly finding someone in their room who gives them what they need to accomplish the great work. And sometimes they show up in dreams and that kind of thing. So I think on a level, he felt that there was something very comforting about that. I fell deeply into that for a time. I was like, okay, well, if he says it's real, this was in the beginning, then I guess it must be real. So I want to meet an initiate. I want to be an initiate. I want to be one of these invisible guys. And so what do I have to do? You know, so I started to read up all the stuff and I changed my diet. I became celibate as much as I could. I did all the things that I thought I needed to do to become an initiate. And it got me into trouble because I started doing things like I met somebody at a bookstore who needed somewhere to stay. And she claimed that she was a high level of attainment and that she had information about fusion experimentation that could change the world. And she moved into our place and like I couldn't get rid of her. Like she was a total hustler. So I went one night with Tamara to the Hall's house. I'll never forget. It was the storm was going on. We were sitting in a dark room and the lightning was lighting up the room. And I started telling him the story of what had occurred. And I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, if I throw her out, then I'm not going to be an initiate, right? I mean, that's not an initiate thing to do. And well, he laughed his ass off, Greg. I mean, he thought it was the funniest thing, you know. And then he said, throw her out. And he said, tell her that I said that if she doesn't leave, to call the police. So, you see, he understood that that whole concept had a lot of negative baggage going with it. 
But I think on another level, he felt like it was a comfort to hopeless people. And maybe he even felt himself that, but maybe there are, you know, maybe there are people of such high attainment and they're out there trying to help however they can. Because when I knew him, he was deeply into Buddhism and Taoism. And in those traditions, there is the tradition of the immortals, right? Of people who achieve such attainment that they kind of transcend the limitations that we all have to deal with. So I think that he was split about that subject, but he was very aware not to take it too literally. And he tried to kind of calm, calm people down, including me about it. And I eventually grew out of that. Tamara called it initiate fever. And I think that's a great term for it. And I think it's something that happens often for people when they start out in metaphysics and are so ambitious to achieve and they hear that story. Now, in our society, as you point out, that's become a, a source of fear. The idea that there's these evil reptilians. And here's the funny thing about it, that science is taking us rapidly to a place where something very similar is highly probable, right? Because when you talk about genetically enhanced kids of people who are wealthy enough to afford that, where a kid can be given a super high IQ, a metabolism that, you know, they could live to be 150 or something, you're creating these sort of elites, this higher level economically, you know, made possible by their wealth, another kind of humanity that could occur in the future as these kids are genetically tinkered with. And so I think that's part of the reason that the fear of these initiates of high level is ringing in the consciousness of humanity right now, because there are very concerted efforts to make that kind of elite a reality. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the promise. We will see uh, how that truly manifests. I think we might get a Frankenstein Island of Dr. Moreau kind of thing that isn't exactly. I kind of hope so uh, myself. Yeah. I mean, I hope it's not that free and easy, <laughs> you know, that just I have a lot of money and I can live twice as long as you and be connected to AI in my brain. So good luck dealing with me. Right. Let them be their own downfall. Yeah. It could be interesting. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's also good to remember on the other side, I like to point out to people as Plato captures in the dialogues, Socrates and a lot of other very wise ancient Greeks were very upset about the introduction of books, of scrolls. <laughs> the written word was dangerous. This was a new technology that was going to ruin society. And of course, there's some truth in the fact that when you're alone with your book, you can read things into the words that if you had the author or a teacher there, you might not slip into those kind of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the anecdotes about Manly P. Hall and breaking down kind of what he thought about some of that stuff. Absolutely true. This kind of esoteric material is not for the faint of heart. And it does bring out the crazies in a lot of ways. And that's just something I guess he had to navigate and other people in this space have to navigate. But yeah, when you think about, oh, the elite, this hidden hand of positive influence, then terms do change and thoughts about the world change from decade to decade. But you look at the fruits of today's world and you just think, man, if there's any hidden hand of positive influence, it either died out or they got quite lazy, or they're not doing that great of a job. And then people will say, oh, well, they're operating on a higher level. You just don't see what's really happening. And it's like, okay, well, you can give false hope 
to people that things are all going to work out because right behind the Dick Cheney's and the political elite are the good guys that are operating up here. I just don't know about all that anymore. But let's get into your book. I can't believe we're 45 minutes into this thing and we haven't even really gotten <laughs> into your book. So I've got six pages of questions about it. I, I'm sure I'm only going to get to uh, half of that. But let's describe it for people. You talk about the journey in the intro. I don't want you to have to rehash that. I've heard you tell it many times. It's part of the story, of course. So, you know, give people a little bit about it, but really just the broad overview of this book, because it's really what we like around here. It's hidden history. It's esoteric history. It's strange stuff that never really makes it into the story. And it is about our home here in America. So it really checks several boxes, but it's a great book. Give people the elevator pitch for it. Sure. It started in the vault during one of those lunches. And I saw this big leather tome on a bottom shelf and it said the Platonist on it. And I asked him, what is that? And he said, oh, that's a good one. Why don't you grab that and take a look at it? So I pick up this book, I open it and it's a newspaper. It's a bound newspaper from the 1880s. And it was published in a place just outside of St. Louis during the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral, when St. Louis was just beginning to become industrialized, but was still a cow town. So it was a cowboy town. And here was somebody publishing something called The Platonist. And I look in it, and it's translations of the Neoplatonists that are translations of Nephus Levi, the Parisian Magus in there. I could not understand how did this thing come to be? And I asked him, and he knew very little about it. It was a mystery. So that set me on a course of seeking to get the information behind this book or this newspaper. And at the time, I couldn't find anything. I found a little bit of information about some of the writers like Alexander Wilder, who was a fascinating character. And I kept looking. I went to all the college libraries. I went everywhere I could. There was no internet. It was just the very beginnings of the internet at that time. So the nice thing that happened was in the 90s and then with a vengeance in the 2000s and on, academia had a revolution, which was they suddenly decided that it was good to study esoteric information. Because before that, in religious studies in particular, you never looked at it. It was considered superstitious idiocy. And it was considered radical to look at the Pentecostals because your job as a historian was to look at the big institutions that had shaped civilization, the big churches. And all of a sudden, a new spirit enlivened academia where the idea was, we're not here to judge this stuff. This is history. And we need to open up all these archives that have never been looked at. And we need to apply our academic skills to understanding what were these people doing and why were they saying these things? And we're not going to say it's stupid or it's brilliant. We're just going to tell you this is what they said. This is what happened. And there was an avalanche of new material based on archives that had never been opened before. It was thrilling. And especially in the beginning. In those early days, Amazon and Google would allow you to search every single book they had all the way. I mean, I had access. These academic books are ridiculously expensive. You know, they're like 100 bucks for a little book. But I could search every academic book 
and through academia and JSTOR and a couple other websites, I could research all the papers. And it was so exciting. I always found things that I just, oh, I wish Manly Hall could have seen this. I mean, this is incredible. It changes the whole story. Just to give you one small example, people often, when they're talking about Rosicrucians, they talk about Robert Flood and Michael Meyer. And they say, well, they knew each other. They were friends and they helped each other get published. And they must have been examples of real Rosicrucians. And academia got in here and started really digging through all this stuff. And what they found was they never met each other. And in fact, they didn't really like each other. They were critical of each other's work and had some very non-initiate things to say about each other. And it changed the whole picture of that. So I found out a whole bunch about the Platonists and about all these other things. And it was this entirely new view of American history. It was almost like, okay, you know the guy you think is your dad? Well, he wasn't. Your dad was actually this crazy outlaw artist person who did all sorts of stuff with indigenous tribes and the Spanish and voodoo. And you're like, what? And you go, oh, yeah, you got a whole bunch of that. Your whole family tree is filled with people like that. And it was this alternate history of America. And not only did it give you these incredible characters who've been here since the very beginning. I mean, before there were colonies, even there were some very early visits here from people who were sent by the crown to see if there could be colonies. And the picture even of the so-called Christian origins changed radically. So for example, there's an author named Butler who analyzed what church attendance was like in the early days of America, the very early colonies and then onward. It was terrible. You had all these priests complaining, going, they won't come to church. We can't get anybody to sit in the pews. They just want to follow their own crazy ideas that they brought with them from the countries they came from. You had the idea that the pilgrims, for example, were deeply Christian. I mean, you can't be more Christian than they are, and that they hated the occult and anything having to do with the esoteric. So wrong. And I'll give you an example of that. And the other thing that you see is that we have this rich alternate history of people who are sort of like forgotten founding fathers, people who have so much to do with the so-called American character in a way that people like you and I can actually appreciate rather than what we get taught in school, which leaves us going, well, my God, what's wrong with this country? I mean, the history is horrendous. These so-called Christians are one of the feet of the triangle of slavery, of the slave trade. And, you know, then it's an empire saying that it isn't. And it's going around manipulating the whole world and saying, no, 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 we're we're a democracy. We don't do things like that. But then all of a sudden you discover, wait a minute, all this has been left out. So now let me give you a good example of that. And this will be in the beginning when the pilgrims were here, a fellow was sent out named John Winthrop, the elder. And he was the head of the Boston colony. And he was a devout pilgrim. There were royalists in England who saw the Puritans getting this strong foothold in the New World, and they didn't like it because, of course, there was the Civil War vibe going on in England that was going to erupt into Cromwell. And you had the royalists on the one hand, the Cavaliers, who were guys with long hair. They usually had beards and they wore cod pieces and they loved Shakespeare. They were fighters and drinkers, and they loved wenching, as they called it. They loved women, and 
they were sort of jolly old England. And the Puritans were, don't run, walk fast, don't laugh. It's wrong to laugh in this world of suffering. And everything was deadly serious and so opposite. And they were headed for this horrible political showdown that would result in war with each other. And so they wanted to send someone, the royalists, who was going to maybe start a colony for the royalists there. Because after all, it was the royalists who started all that with Walter Raleigh, who was sent out to the Virginia colony. And they sent out a guy named Tom Morton. I call him the pagan pilgrim in the book. Tom Morton was a classic cavalier. When he was a little kid, he saw the Armada in the Straits of England. Queen Elizabeth I was the monarch for most of his life. He was a lawyer. He was deeply into Shakespeare and into the great literature of Elizabethan England. He was like approaching 50 when he was sent out, which in itself at that time, that was an advanced age. And he sails across the Atlantic to start this new colony. And he started it with a trading post. He named it Marymount. There was this beautiful little green hill that overlooked the Atlantic. And there he built this trading post and he called it Marymount. One, it was the Mount of Mary, but it was also a pun in Latin about screwing, right? Mary Mount, but it was derived from Latin words. And he had a completely different approach, whereas the pilgrims were convinced that Satan was everywhere in the New World, that the tribes were victims of Satan, and they could not be trusted to such a degree that John Winthrop, the governor of Boston, once got caught out in the woods at night and became so terrified that he like ran in a panic through the woods until he found a menstrual hut that one of the local tribes had set up. And he hid in the menstrual hut and chased off the women who were using it for the purpose it was intended so he could hide in the shelter until dawn, convinced that there were demons all around him in the woods. Meanwhile, here comes Tom Morton, and he says, oh, tribes, awesome. So what do you guys believe in? What do you dream? How do you treat your elders? How do you teach your children? What kind of lives do you lead? And please come to my trading post. I'll take care of you. I'll be fair with you. And also, by the way, outlaws, pirates, I mean, everybody's welcome at my trading post, not like the pilgrims over there. He was also a hunter and a very skilled hunter. And he fell in love with America, with how gorgeous America is. He wrote, for instance, this long piece about the different kinds of water that the tribes knew about in that area. There was one spring that came up through a crystal that was supposed to give you amazing dreams. There were other springs that were supposed to be healing for certain conditions, and he carefully wrote all this down. He became successful, of course, very quickly and immediately aroused the anger and envy of the pilgrims. So he decided to have a May Day celebration. May Day celebrations were very common in England, and he felled this giant yellow pine, and they stripped it, and they put ribbons on it, and he wrote this really body poem to a goddess of all things, and he had it pinned on there, and he had a big party, and he invited everybody, again, smugglers, pirates, outlaws, all the tribes, and he, all he said was, while you're here, everybody gets along. No violence, no fighting. You put aside everything. Now, does this not sound like the other side of America, the side that we all want, right? 
as opposed to this puritanical, in control, we're better than you, judgmental side of America. So John Winthrop decides, okay, that's enough. A May Day celebration? So the pilgrims start releasing propaganda in England that this party was an orgy, that everybody got together and got drunk, and that they were fornicating on the grass under the maypole, which was absolutely false. And what Tom Morton actually said in his book was, I got news for you. The indigenous women are way more moral than the lasses back home. Okay. And nothing like that happened. It was the most friendly, wonderful gathering of people where everybody was talking to each other and learning from each other. So John Winthrop decided to take legal action against Tom Morton. And they were going to close down this trading post. He thought they're going to start a war against us or something. They're going to get all the tribes together and just take over and that'll be the end of us. So Tom Morton, he was a lawyer, so he thought he could handle it. And he kept on doing what he was doing, which included selling guns to some of the tribes that had been decimated by the diseases that were brought over by Europeans and who were now being attacked by bigger tribes who were trying to take them over and turn them into slaves, essentially. They were enslaving them. And he said, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to sell you guns so you can protect yourselves. I'll teach you how to use them. I'll teach you how to keep them clean. Well, the pilgrims went nuts. They were like, he's training the tribes to come kill us. He's arming them with guns. What are we going to do? So... They went in there and they broke the whole thing up, right? The first time they went in there, they smashed up the place and let everybody know if you keep doing this, you're going to jail. They arrested Tom. They threw him in jail. Winthrop is spending all his time trying to find something to pin on this guy because he hasn't really broken any laws. So now it gets really interesting. At this time, the pilgrims are already playing around with the idea of slavery. Like they're going to become a fulcrum point of the slave trade. But what they're doing is they're taking people who've been arrested and condemned, and they're taking indentured servants, and they're throwing them into the very earliest of the tobacco plantations, where they live these horrendous lives as enslaved people until they die. And Tom, whenever he can, he tries to help people escape that fate, which is another thing that the pilgrims hate him for. He warns people, you know, I'll get you out of here. You know, you go here and then go back to England or something. You're not safe here. And that was considered an act of treason to the pilgrims, that they had judged this person and condemned this person to the punishment of working on one of these plantations and this guy comes along before we can grab him and put him to work and spirits him off. We got to get rid of this guy. Well, to make the story brief, this part of the story, because there's an even better part coming up, Tom Morton fights this out for years and he's got nicknames for all the pilgrims that we grew up like looking at Disney movies and admiring them because they were so wonderful. And he's got nicknames like Captain Shrimp for Miles Standish. And he despises them, right? And one of the things that he despises about them is that when they arrest him in winter, they're starving, okay? I mean, they went to the point of cannibalism at a certain point. Even the way they're building their structures is wrong. They don't put any lime in it. And when it rains, 
their structures are melting down and breaking down around them. He's telling them, you need to put lime in it. If you put lime in it, it'll withstand the rain. They're like, that's satanic. You're trying to make us sick or something. And he says, okay, fine. But what about this? Let me go hunt. And I will swear to the Lord that I will come back and bring you food so that you people can survive. So they say, all right, if you swear, you can go get us food. He goes out there. He hunts for these idiots who've arrested him and disrupted everything he's doing, brings them back food. They separate the food out so that the poorest among them don't get any. And he says, okay, I will go hunt for the poor. It's no problem. There's so much food around here. You people are starving, surrounded by food. And they say no. They say they're poor because God wills it that way. And they have to suffer. Well, he thinks they're idiots at this point, right? And eventually this becomes a war in the courts in England where he travels back and then comes back to America again. And there's like these changes in the government in England. And at one time, the pilgrims were supported and they support Tom. Then they withdraw their support from Tom and give it back to the pilgrims. A real mess. And finally, the whole thing blows up when they show up in force to seize him. And he says that they would have killed him, that they acted with such ferocity that if there had not been a veteran there who protected him, he would have been killed on the spot. They take him away and they burn down Marymount right before one of the worst winters ever. And they bring the local tribes to see this, you know, watch this place burn down. The tribes stand there and laugh at the pilgrims because the tribes can tell from the signals that nature is giving that this is going to be a devastating winter. And they're just going, look at this idiot. He's burning down a good shelter right before one of the worst winters that we're going to see. And meanwhile, they starve Tom. They put him on an island. They maroon him. And they leave him with like sugar and a couple, I mean, almost no food at all. He would have died if the local indigenous people hadn't brought him food. And then they ship him off on a slow boat, meaning a boat that's going to make stops everywhere. Knowing that he's like, now he's like in his 60s, he's probably not going to make it. He actually did get back to England, but he did not get back to America. And the pilgrims, of course, totally won. And nobody knows about Tom Morton. It's almost invisible in our history. And this guy, and we'll leave him with this comment. He was the first person in America to publish a fart joke. He was the first person in America to publish a dick joke. He was the first person in America to be banned in Boston. He was the first person in America to be foreclosed upon by a corporation because the pilgrims were incorporated. So he represented, when I looked at him, I just thought, well, he's us. Like that guy's more American than the pilgrims are. Then you start to examine the pilgrims a little more closely. John Winthrop, the elder, had a son named John Winthrop the Younger. Now we're going to get back to Rosicrucianism. So John Winthrop the Younger is in England while his dad is in America at first because he's a young man and he's studying. And he gets wind of the Rosicrucian manifestos and he loves all the occult stuff. He's fascinated by John D. And he wants to do what Father CRC, the founder of the Rosicrucians, did, which is he wants to go to Constantinople and find 
some of these masters, these invisible masters, right, that are going to teach me how to have their powers and to help the world be a better place. He tries this several times. He actually got all the way to Constantinople, but he never met anybody who impressed him. And he and his friend spent a few years searching out Rosicrucians whenever they could. And at the end of it, he decided, I haven't found one, but you know what I'm going to do? I love their ideas. So I'm going to live up to the Rosicrucian ideals. I'm going to be a Rosicrucian myself by doing the things that they say should be done. And he went deeply into alchemy at that point. So around 1631, his father says, come out here. So the younger packs up all his stuff. He has acquired a lot of John Dee's library at this point and some of John Dee's alchemical equipment. John Dee was the astrologer for Queen Elizabeth, was kind of the court wizard, was notorious for traveling in Europe as a spy and someone spreading these Rosicrucian, what would become Rosicrucian ideals and occult ideas and eventually was discredited and considered to be some sort of evil wizard. But in the world of John Winthrop the Younger, he was a wonderfully learned man who was sort of the beginnings of science. And John Winthrop the Younger wanted to continue his work. So when he ships out his crates full of alchemical gear and John Dee's manuscripts and books, he marks them with John Dee's Monus Hieroglyphica, an occult symbol. It's comparable to I usually say it's like having a Southern Baptist preacher's kid put pentagrams on his luggage, right? Now, he gets to Boston. You would think that his dad would be like, kid, what are you doing? You know, no, his dad's like, set up the alchemical lab in our house. I'm fascinated by this, you know, keep up the good work. Well, John the Younger blossoms into this amazing character. I think he might be my favorite character in the book because he lived such an exemplary life in many ways. He found Boston very disturbing and too conformist for his tastes. He wanted to create a community where everyone was welcome. And he wanted to be somewhere where he didn't constantly have Puritans looking over his shoulder when he was doing alchemy and such. So he moved into the Connecticut wilderness and he actually bargained with the local tribes to acquire some land out there. And he became the first governor of the territory of Connecticut. And he did very exemplary Rosicrucian things. For example, he was an excellent alchemist. He was very good at creating medicines. And he became a famous doctor in the world. People would travel all the way from Europe to this outlandish colony in, in America in the wilderness just to be treated by him. And he became the doctor for that whole area of New England. He trained women to travel in these areas. And he had various medicines that he put into specially colored packets. And he taught them to recognize certain symptoms and to prescribe the correct packet of medicine to the people who were suffering. And he did it all for free. Very Rosicrucian. Then. In his efforts to develop science, he started the first iron foundry in the area, and he needed these tools in order to create the things that he was trying to create. 
He also defended the weak and the innocent. When the Pequot tribe were being attacked by Uncas and the Mohegans, and Uncas, by the way, nothing like in the Cooper book or in the famous movie, Last of the Mohegans, Uncas was a bully, a really violent kind of rotten person. And the culture of the Mohegans at that time was a bully culture. So one of the famous stories was they would go find Pequots who had been devastated by disease. So there were very few of them and say, hey, you want to gamble? And gambling with a Mohican meant you're going to lose because they're going to cheat. And if you don't lose, they'll kill you. And seeing this, John Winthrop the Younger decided to protect the tribe. Very dangerous for him to do this, as you can imagine, especially because the pilgrims were supporting the Mohegans in this terrible action of trying to enslave these Pequots who'd already lost everything to disease. So John Winthrop the Younger negotiated, he appealed to reason, he even brought them, he moved the tribe to be right next to his community so that they would get a little bit of protection by being near him. And the Mohegans went in there anyway, and they broke their baskets and their pottery. They stripped them naked in the middle of winter and threw them in the freezing river. And they beat up anybody who tried to stop them. And there were pilgrim supervisors watching this atrocity happen. Seeing that, John used the horror that it aroused in people, even amongst the pilgrims of Boston, and got support finally to protect the Pequots. He fought to have the name of the tribe and their land restored, and even their names had been taken from them. They'd been given Europeanized names, and he fought to allow them to restore their original names. And so, really a remarkable human being. And the other thing that he did that was really wonderful was that all the colonies were supposed to provide soldiers for the crown. and. He was expert at finding ways to prevent his people from having to go fight in wars. He would ignore the messages at first. And then when the messages became angrier, he would come up with great excuses. Oh, we're building this iron foundry and we need every single guy here working on it. But as soon as we're done, we'll send them out. So most of these people were able to survive without having to go back to England and fight in a war. And when John Winthrop the Younger died, Cotton Mather, now there's another pilgrim when you think of and you think, well, he's held up as, the, you know, he was behind the Salem witch trials to a degree. And here's a guy that was massively Christian. I mean, you can't be more Christian than Cotton Mather. But Cotton Mather was a dear friend of John Winthrop the Younger's. And when he eulogized him, he called him Hermes Christianus the Christian Hermes. Now, whether he's talking about the Greek god Hermes or he's talking about Hermes of the Hermetic teachings, dude, I mean, Cotton Mather is complimenting someone by calling them Hermes Christianus. That's not the pilgrim that we thought he was. So that changed the whole picture. And the other thing that is part of the reason I wrote the book aside from just wanting all this information that was unavailable to people to be available in, in one place. So you wouldn't have to do all the research that I did. And I had a lot of help from academics who were really kind and in helping inform me. 
the thing that was very obvious to me in doing this was that the split that is in the country today was there then and has been there every step of the way throughout the country. And an interesting side note on that is that behavioral scientists like Sapolsky, they say that if you want to identify a conservative from personality traits, that people who react with disgust to what they don't agree with are much more likely to be conservative. I think that's true of when I grew up, but I think it might be flipped a little bit now. I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. Well, it's infecting the whole culture at this point. I think everybody sort of has picked up this disease of blaming the other and distrust of the other. But that disgust, it was a difference. Like to me, like I look at Morton and John Winthrop the Younger, who are treating the natives as they are, you know, these are human beings and we can learn from them and we should help them. And like Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, who learned the indigenous languages and then aroused the ire of Boston, of the pilgrims, because he would not try to convert the indigenous tribes. He said that they had the right to their own religion. He talked about freedom of religion and the need to separate religion from politics got him thrown out of Boston at that time. And so if you look at the pilgrims, they're disgusted by Tom Morton. They're disgusted by the indigenous people. They're projecting their own kind of shadows on these people. So, you know, there must have been an orgy and they were all drunk. And it's like, well, you wish, you know, that's your <laughs> fantasy. And, yeah, yeah. and feeling disgust toward that fantasy that they have invented. And here's Tom Morton saying, I want to meet them. I want to talk to them. I want to know what they know. I want to make a big melting pot of Marymount. So you really see there the split that's been at the heart of the psyche of America from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's well said. And that is a great overview of some of the really interesting stories that do weave throughout the book. You're right. It's always more complex than the cartoonish simplification that we get through Hollywood and a few sanctioned academic writers. And the underground is always there, but it doesn't always make it into the story. And this is the American underground of the early days. And I do love it. Tom Morton. I'm well, look, glad I, mean, I Harvard and Yale. Harvard and Yale in their early days had alchemical labs. Yes. And one of the early presidents of Yale said he got together with the other college presidents and he said, we need to teach Kabbalah <laughs> because a Kabbalist who'd been wandering the world showed up in the colonies and became his teacher. And he thought, wow, this Kabbalah is great. It's a great way to look at the world mm -hmm. and it should be taught at every single American college. Yeah, things so, could have been so, so that's much how deeply yeah, exactly. So, I'm glad I learned about Thomas Morton in the book. Uh, I've added him to my list of favorite people who got chewed up and spit out by the big machine. It's a very long list. And he seemed like you said to learn a lot from the indigenous people. I like this quote where you write, "Thomas Morton reported on a shaman who amazed his colonialist audience." By chanting until a thick cloud arrived out of nowhere, thunder resounded, and a chunk of ice appeared in a bowl of water on a hot summer day. As usual, the devil was given credit for the demonstration. But that is a very <laughs> trippy demonstration. 
And I like hearing stories from indigenous America. We've done previous interviews about just how much cultivated abundance there was before the colonialists came. You even mention Tom Morton's book, New English Canon. And he even says that in the book, he mentioned spruce trees 20 feet around, a mile long oyster bank, seasonal flock of a million passenger pigeons. And I like also the description of various local waters. He gets in with the indigenous. They're like, we can talk to this guy. He's a good guy. And they show him local waters for inducing sleep. And as you mentioned, visionary states, one for curing melancholy. And it's just really wild to get those kind of insights. And I'm so glad someone did. I really enjoyed talking to you. There's so many things in the book I love that we didn't get to. The Marvelous Mr. Miller. I've heard you talking about Stuart and Betty White and that channeling. And there's just a lot of great stuff. Emanuel Swedenborg. But, you know, it is what it is. People can read the book if they want to get into more. But hey, if you want to, if you know, I'm happy to come back and talk about those things. If you wished to do that, just fair. let me know. Yes. Well, for this one, it is about that time. Give the people any other pieces of information you'd like them to have. Parting info, links, upcoming work, all that good stuff. Okay. Um, let's see. I will be teaching a class for the Theosophical Society on the Orpheus stuff in spring. And I have a book coming out. I don't know exactly when about the origins of Rosicrucianism from inner traditions. Probably early next year, but I'm not sure. I also have a book on the Whites that has just been finished. I'm not sure what the fate of that book will be yet. I'm thinking about self-publishing that because the process of old-fashioned publishing is so takes so long. There's some virtues to it, but I really want to experiment with being able to get things out there more quickly. And just launched a YouTube channel. It's like playlists of all the things I've done. There's been over like 70 or 80 podcasts. And I'm putting up old lectures from when I substituted for Manly Hall. And I think that what I'd like to leave your listeners with is let's make use of our time here. Let's, while we got these, right, we got these great hands here <laughs> and we can actually do things in this world. Let's see what we can do to bring about change starting right where we are. I like and it. And to make those small decisions to, to lend support where we can. And so to identify an issue, that's part of the thing about all of this. It's like when you're looking at all the conspiracy theories, you will see all these places where things have gone wrong. So is there some small way we can help make something go right? And that I think is the key. Because it's true that people have worried about younger generations historically throughout human history, but it's usually because the younger generation is doing something that we don't want them to do. But I think you'll agree with me that we're worried about them now because a lot of the hard-earned space that, you know, let's say the hippies and the punks created and that were created in the worlds of art and music and all over the place, they're gone. And for people who, you know, there's a certain number of people in every generation who are, let's call them rebels, who don't fit into the prevailing order, who don't want to go that route. It used to be 
in the world of punk and rock, for example, that you could reinvent yourself there. You know, people went in there, they made T-shirts, they opened clubs, they were poster artists. There was a whole flourishing community of people around that, which has been devastated by streaming for the most part, because there's no money anymore. So what can we do? What small things can we do to encourage the creation of something new that fulfills that same purpose? And to look around, because I believe that now going back to the very beginning of what we were talking about, about Manley Hall's dedication in that book to the rational soul of nature, I believe that if you get tuned with that, that you can collaborate, that nature will bring things to you. Nature will show you something to do. Mm -hmm. Here's a good place to put your effort. And when we open up our minds to that, life can have miraculous change happen in it. And that's what we need more than anything right now is all of us who are digging into this, into the conspiracy theories, into you know what's wrong with the world now. So what are we going to do? Right? What little thing can we do? Enough of us do it. We're going to have a different world. I think that's true. And that is a good piece of parting advice for sure. Well, Ronnie, it has been a serious pleasure. You wrote a very unique book and restored some lost esoteric history, which I think we all appreciate around here. And hopefully we'll do it again in the future. But until then, take care. Cool. You too, Greg. Thanks for having me. Ronnie Pontiac, ladies and gentlemen, unique research and a unique life. I had a good time. I wish we were able to stay a little more focused on the largely unknown material of his book. We really haven't had a solid occult show in a long time, and I only had two questions about Manly P. Hall. What can you tell us about him that we wouldn't learn from the biographies? And what do you think about that roving band of immortal elite kind of stuff? And then all of a sudden, we were 45 minutes in. I thought we might be 10 minutes in at that point, but conversations are organic and you never really know. And for some reason, we just couldn't get off the, is there a hidden hand and are they benevolent or malevolent thing in the second hour? A couple of times I felt the need for a counterpoint, but even then I should have just brought it back to the book and let it go. I have always liked Manly P. Hall lectures, and talking to someone who knew him firsthand is kind of exciting. I never really had a reason to think Manly was a bad guy. Some people become Masons because they want to acquire and share knowledge, and I have no problem with that. I have a problem with hoarding knowledge and weaponizing magic and ritual and abusing power, but I just don't see that from Manly P. Hall. I consider him just to be a teacher. He actually encouraged people to be disciplined and to be the best versions of themselves, as far as I can tell. In fact, here's a great quote of his where he says, To live in the world without becoming aware of the meaning of the world is like wandering about in a great library without touching the books. He wanted people to be curious and get up off the couch and explore. And I think that's a beautiful thing, though I know almost nothing about his life outside of the work he produced, and I guess I'm all right with that. So I hope this interview was still entertaining for those who haven't heard Ronnie tell those anecdotes before. 
Obviously, the best part of the book we were able to get into was the pagan pilgrim, Thomas Morton. I actually read parts of this paragraph, but let me read it in full regarding Thomas Morton's book, New English Canon. Ronnie breaks that book down by saying, In section one, Tom describes the robust health of the indigenous people, musing that it did not save them from the plague and other epidemics brought by colonists from Europe. He describes their sharp senses, and he concludes the first section with a chapter about how content the tribes were as they had little desire for possessions and, for the most part, shared and enjoyed the wealth of nature. He described their pleasure at drinking from their cupped hands water bubbling up from natural crystal springs. In the second section of New English Canon, Tom made a long list of all the possible products America had to offer. Every description of vegetation or animal is followed with a sentence about its usefulness and potential for profit. It's hard to read these lists that describe in detail the flora and fauna we have lost. Spruce trees 20 feet around, a mile-long oyster bank, and the seasonal flock of a million passenger pigeons. Tom also describes a variety of local waters, one induced sleep or among the tribes, visionary states, another he recommends for curing melancholy, and then in the third section of New English Canon, Tom told stories about Puritan violence and unfairness to the indigenous people, and a quote from Tom is that you may easily perceive that the uncivilized people are more just than the civilized. And this I thought was interesting. Original editions of Tom's book are extremely scarce now since almost all copies were seized and destroyed. Several years ago, an original became available for the first time in 25 years for a mere $137,000. With only one limited edition reprint in two centuries, we came very close to never hearing about Thomas Morton, never hearing his point of view. So I liked that a lot because it just shows how easy it is to lose very valuable information if it has any kind of counterculture angle to it. Who knows how many great books like this that shared important knowledge about indigenous people or magic or many, many things never actually did resurface and never actually did get a reprint. It's got to be a lot, right? Hundreds, thousands? It's interesting to think about. But I also got to bring up one of the very weird high strangeness stories of the Shaker girls who heard singing in the air and went into a weird dancing trance. Winthrop the Younger was also an intriguing figure of his time. But really, we're just talking about rebel philosophers and counterculture figures of the past. The kind of people that really are always present, but our history focuses on the collective and the mainstream. I guess I just never thought about it much, but of course there were always people out on the fringe. Of course there were people who didn't drink the Kool-Aid of their day. And it's really nice to have them highlighted in a book like Ronnie's. Just deconstructing the idea that America was always a Christian nation is valuable to me. And a big shout out to Mark Steves for putting Ronnie on my radar. It wouldn't have happened without him. The only other thing I considered bringing up and decided against it was the Rosicrucian thing. 
Ronnie kind of brought this up on his own, but those foundational books from the 1600s were apparently a parody or basically a fiction. We talked about this with Schwab. Now, did the author say that because they got too popular and he wanted to obscure things, or was it really something he made up as a teenager? I bought the trilogy because I've never read it, but in Diana Pasolka's new book, she tells an anecdote about Jacques Vallée being a Rosicrucian and pulling a Rosicrucian book off the shelf for her to look into. And then Ronnie talks about Manly P. Hall living the Rosicrucian way. So it could just be an archetype or a template and not a real fraternal organization. You could model your life off of someone from fiction if there's enough detail there. But it is weird when the author says he made this stuff up and people of that caliber adopt it so wholeheartedly. I guess I'll know more when I read the trilogy for myself. So the Plus Show does get into a bit more than just our back and forth over the elite's moral leanings and the value of conspiracy in general. We talked about indigenous shamanism a bit more deeply, spiritualism, and some high strangeness stories. Sign up if you like what I do. Check the links in the show notes. And as for the last episode with James Madden, unidentified hyper object, the Uber Umwelt and the cave, it's sitting at a 4.6 rating from the plus people, and I'm happy about that. Right in the range that most people consider a good episode. I always want a strong recovery when we have a rating down in the threes. So that's good, and we'll see what happens with this one. Maybe it's well-liked, because Ronnie is a compelling speaker, regardless the topic, but I was just getting very antsy, because I knew how much I wanted to fit in. I was looking at the clock, and it was hard to interject. But kudos to him for being as knowledgeable as he is, and for putting out a very unique book. We didn't even talk about the Orphic Hymns, and I know there's some good stuff there too, but maybe next time. As always, let's do a quick run-through of the upcoming meetup events before I call it in. What do we have on deck? Well, today we actually have the recurring Denver Gets Higher meetup. This one's at Bar 404, March 2nd, Millforth, Connecticut, the woods at Red Root Farm. Now, this host says that his brothers and him built two geodomes on their farm in Milford, Connecticut. Oh, it's Milford. It says Milford in the uh, description. Must be a typo. But one is for good old-fashioned THC. So if you want to go and have a good hang in a geodome on a farm on March 2nd in Milford, Connecticut, you know how to get that done. March 7th, Flame International Restaurant in L.A. once again. March 8th, Porsche's Cafe in Columbus, Ohio. Also March 8th, Two Pitchers Brewery in Oakland, California. March 15th, Urban Brewery in Manchester, Connecticut. Connecticut, it's happening. March 23rd, Red Oak Brewery in Whitset, North Carolina. Also March 23rd, Saco, Maine, the Golden Rooster. This host says, judging from our first meetup, higher side fans are hungry for connection in Maine and New Hampshire. So they're doing it again. Love to see it. And March 30th in British Columbia, Canada, Fieldhouse Brewing. It's happening. 
So very nice. March is looking pretty packed, which is awesome to see. It's a low cost, low risk way to expand your local network. I've gotten a lot of good reports back from people who had really good experiences. And obviously it's going pretty well when you see these recurring events. Check the calendar for all the details and be sure to RSVP so the hosts know what to expect. It's only good manners, HiresideMeetups.com. But that's the show. I have the next two recorded already, and I am certain they're going to be well-liked. Both returning guests making their second appearance, and I'm a big fan of both, even though their material is nothing alike. But until then, I'm getting out of here. Thanks for listening. And if you're a Plus member, thanks for that, too. I've done my part. Your move, narrative controllers, history writers, and nuance erasers. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'd be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'd be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down to the center of the earth Through the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 